better than trusting a microphone that doesn't sound like it's going to work again. I think there might be a pattern, and uh, the definition of insanity is, is what? Oh, maybe we're not going to have to define insanity after all. Well, welcome. It is great to be with you this morning. It's a special day in the life of the church. I don't know how many of you follow church history of AIC very closely, but given that we are in an Asian culture, this would mark a very special anniversary in the life of our church. If you've been keeping track, today is our eighth anniversary as a branch church. That's a pretty cool thing. Uh, Just before I arrived eight years ago, uh, the church officially became a branch church of the Kowloon Tong Alliance Church of the Chinese Christian Missionary Alliance. Long name, but we became in proper form at our annual general meeting that year, Alliance International Church. Eight years later, a lot's gone on. Uh, we've had uh, three lead pastors, I being the third in that time. Uh, we've been able to celebrate God at work. Uh, We've been able to learn from some mistakes, grow from some developmental opportunities, and see beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has been faithful. So as we move into our annual general meeting at 11.15 promptly today, we'll start in a different way. So even if you aren't a member, I would encourage you to at least stay for the beginning. We've got something different for you uh, that I think everyone will enjoy. Uh, We've also got the privilege this year of right before our AGM, we welcomed in uh, quite a few new members, so hopefully they'll all uh, join us as well as we get started. Not only is today the 8th anniversary of the church, which is a great thing, but it's not that big of a deal, uh, much greater is our chance to begin a series looking at the book of Deuteronomy. If I were to walk around the room and say, how many of you, when you hear we're looking at Deuteronomy, get really excited by that? I'm real enough to understand that probably not too many hands are going to go in the air. Uh, But over the past year, I've spent a lot of time in the book. And when I shared with the under shepherds, I think I'd love for us to go through this as a congregation. They said, let's do it. Because Deuteronomy is a very rich book. It's kind of the linchpin of the rest of the historical books. In fact, some would call it uh, from Joshua to 2 Kings, they call that the Deuteronomical I can't say it, but you get the idea. History, in other words, everything that was kind of explained in the book of Deuteronomy then was chronicled in Joshua, Judges, not so much Ruth, but then in First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel. So you get this beginning, this explanation of all that God has and expects of his people. Before we do, I'd like us to open in our Bibles... And look at Deuteronomy chapter 1. I'm not going to put it on the screen. I I like you to look at your own Bibles or or you can follow along and listen to me as I read. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verses 1 through 8 is is where we'll be this morning. Uh, But to warn you, today is largely an introduction. We can't dive in until at least we get kind of the framework in place of where we've been and what's going on. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan. That is in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizhabab. There will be a quiz later on those names. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. In the 40th year, 
On the first day of the eleventh month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and at Idre, who defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord God, that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you just as your mercies are new every morning. It continues to astound me how your word in my own personal life grows in richness. So I pray that as we embark on a study of a book that can often be overlooked, that you would teach us, that you would speak, that they would be your words. And Lord, as we lay some foundations today, soften our hearts and and allow us to be responsive to that which you would have for us today. In your name, amen. The year was 1994. I was a sophomore in high school. For those of you that don't use those terms, that's grade 10, year 11, depending on which cycle we're going with. And uh, we got to choose one or two electives every year in high school. And as the case of most teenage boys, my electives were largely chosen by what girls were going to be in the class. And so that semester, I chose to take a a course called Introduction to Drama. I I don't like acting. I'll do it if I have to. You've seen me as certain individuals that are notorious in the Bible before. But acting wasn't something I desired to do, but meeting Kelly was. So I took this drama class. And toward the end of the semester, you build up. You learn the basics of drama. You learn about speaking and enunciating how now, brown cow, uh, and things like that. And in the end, we were going to perform a, a, a short one-act play for the school. And as our, as our teacher was handing out the script, it was an interesting name. And I thought, well, that's odd that we're talking about gambling. But she handed us a script to a play by a woman named Shirley Jackson. And the name of the play was The Lottery. And as we were reading the script, you know, kind of like they do in TV shows, we sat around and we read out loud whenever our parts was, tried to get used to it. We realized that this was a very, very bizarre play. And honestly, it was kind of a little bit disturbing because throughout you get this whole process of this little agricultural town somewhere in middle America that is telling the, the story of how this lottery is so significant and so central to their ability to grow and raise crops. Like, whatever happened at this lottery was essential to a good harvest that year. It was key. But you're not told what anything else beyond that in the lottery. And it's kind of this, it, she does a great job, Shirley does this great job of building up the suspense for the big final moments of the play. 
And it's in those final moments that we discover Tessie Hutchinson had picked the winning ticket. She had won the lottery. Now, normally when we say, you've won the lottery, that's good news. That's a good thing, right? Yeah, we're excited about that. Woohoo! Well, in this case, the plot takes a dramatically disturbing turn because we see as soon as she picks up the ticket, around the square of the town, people back up away from her, and she finds herself isolated in the middle. And all those townspeople, even her little son, had picked up rocks to throw at her to stone and kill her because the lottery was about a human sacrifice. The entire point of this lottery system in this little town in fictional America in the story was about the fact that this whole town would come together agreeingly and kill one of their own to try to appease the gods or the whoever blessed their agricultural efforts. And so we performed this play. And at the end, our, our teacher asked us, so what, what do you think of the play? And, and we had to discuss it. What's, what's the point of it? And I said, and she asked me what I thought because she knew I was a Christian and liked to try to cause trouble with me. I wasn't a very strong Christian at the time. And, and so she would try to get me to fall on my words. I said, well, just it doesn't seem right. And she said, okay, that's fine. But a woman later on uh, named, uh, let's see, Kay Haggard wrote more about this place. She said, I've been teaching this place since the 50s and 60s, since it first came out. She said, when it first came out, the students I taught it to in high school were revolted by the sheer notion that there would be a culture that would sacrifice one of their own just for a fake opportunity at a good crop. She said, but as the years have gone on, the reactions to the story have changed. It's amazing how the story, she says, has lost its sting over time. How it used to be met with terror and just derision at, no, why would anyone ever do that? She said, and the, the last time she wrote about this was in the late 90s. She said, now the most two common responses were, well, that's not a very well-written play. Or, what's the big deal? They did what they had to do. And Hagerd goes on to ask the question, what has so happened to life here in this culture we find ourselves that the sheer act of the human soul has lost its value? That life has become a commodity? That she could sit there and teach 16, 15, 17-year-old students this troubling play, to say the least. And their response at the end was, eh, no big deal. What's happened to life for us? That it's become so devalued, that it's become a commodity, that there are more unborn children murdered today than any other time, that slavery, some estimate, is more rampant in today's world than it has ever been in the history of mankind. There are numerous studies that say there are more slaves in the world today than in any other time in history because we have somehow commodified humanity. We have somehow in our lives moved away from saying the soul and man have value to we're expendable. How's that happen? 
Well, the answer is pretty simplistic. We, as a culture, as a human race, have acted an awful lot like the people that tried to build the Tower of Babel. We, not necessarily us in general, sometimes we are guilty as well, as well, but we have sought to glorify ourselves. We have sought to show how great we are. But in the process, we have devalued life because we've taken the meaning out of life and said that life is all about status, success, and whatever we want. We've lost the idea of what it looks like to live in a healthy, God-governed way of life. That's where we find ourselves when we look at the beginning of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a book that says, let's look at life. Let's look at what God intends for the very people he covenanted. You're going to hear that word a lot over the next 10 or so weeks. The idea of covenant is so central to our understanding of theology. God's word with man. God's promise with man. And God's expectation of a right response from man. And as we look at the book of Deuteronomy, what we see is that it speaks of a life the way God intended. It speaks of a life hid in the sovereignty and the control of our great God and King. It speaks of a life of a man that had learned the hard way that God has a plan, and we should obey him. And that's where we find ourselves. In verse 1, we come to these are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan. Now, when you look first, we come back, well, what's Deuteronomy mean? Do we have any Latin people in the audience, or, or Latin-speaking, understanding people that understand what Deuteronomy would actually mean? Or anyone that speaks any romantic language could probably figure out the, the prefix, dut. Uno, dos, un, du. I can't remember the others. I don't remember Latin. Dut. Basically, when it got translated into this thing called the Latin Vulgate, they moved all of the scriptures into Latin, and then it was adopted as the Septuagint, fancy words, uh, Later on, they mistakenly named it the second law. Okay, that's what we've stuck with as the title. But if you go back to Hebrew tradition, it's interesting. And I bring all that up, not just so you've got some good trivia for games later on. But in Hebrew tradition, Deuteronomy had such value that it was simply known as these are the words. In other words, listen to these words. They are worth their weight in gold. These are the words of God. Tradition dictates that it was Moses that authored most of the book, if not all. There are controversies and there's different discussion over how he could have done that because 
his death is included in the account, and we can discuss that later on and different things. But as you look at scriptures time and again in Joshua, in 1 Kings, in Malachi, Matthew, and Romans, they seem to indicate that Moses was the writer or Moses was the one speaking and indicating what should be written. And so you look here in verse 1 of chapter 1. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan. Now, what do we know about Moses at this point in his life? Regardless of which view of the dating of Deuteronomy you you take, we know that it's been 40 years that the Israelites have been walking around aimlessly. Moses has come to the end of his journey because we also know as we look back that Moses was told due to disobedience he would not enter the promised land. And so when you get to this point, and we'll look at the journey they've been on in just a minute, you see you can find a man that's getting ready for his last sermon series. If I was only going to be with you three more times, what would I say? What would I want to emphasize to you? And the book of Deuteronomy essentially contains Moses' three last sermons and then two poems that are both prophetic and judgmental in nature and then a succession of power. What's amazing about all this is it's also a wonderful picture of covenantal life, of how things are supposed to look. And so Moses, at the end of his ministry, at the end of his public service to the people of Israel, begins by giving him one more talking to. And we'll look at just how he starts in just a moment. But what do we find next? We find that it takes 11 days to go from Horeb. Anyone know where Horeb is? There's another name for it you might be familiar with. Anyone remember that? Mount Sinai. Excellent. Yes, they're used interchangeably, but Mount Sinai was also known as Horeb. And it was supposed to take 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. So that's where they find themselves. Now let's look at a map briefly and so you can get an idea of what's going on. If you could see these numbers, this has kind of been the journey of the wilderness wandering. If you see number one over there, after leaving Egypt, the Israelites went first to Mount Sinai, to Horeb. First. That's where they first were. And it was there... Number two, that God gave the Israelites his law from Mount Sinai. And he established a system of government for this new young nation. Remember, Israel isn't what we know it today as this old and very historical and rich in tradition nation. This is the beginning of the nation that is supposed to be God's very mouthpiece and people that are set apart for the whole world to watch and draw people to himself. God had set apart this young nation of Israel as his chosen people. And when he told them he expected them to live, that was done. This was how they were to live. This is what they were to do. This is why they should do it. All that was given at Mount Sinai. After the disappointment at Kadesh, after they decided that they couldn't do things the way God was telling them. The Israelites later rebel and try to take the promised land themselves, only to have to turn back because as many of us have discovered, 
when we try to get in front of God, typically things don't go very well, do they? The Israelites had told God, no, we can't do it. Then they decided, why not try on our own? That didn't go well, and it led to 40 years of walking around this area. Now, if you know anything about Middle Eastern geography, you know the Middle East is not exactly large. It was a journey that, as that verse says, should have taken 11 days. Now, if you're good at math, you could multiply 365 times 40 and find out that that's a lot more than 11. That is a long time of a bunch of men not stopping and asking for directions. That is a bunch of time of being so hopelessly lost you can't find your way out. They weren't lost. They were kept away from the very land that God had promised them. Why? Because he told the people of Israel that none of you, save two men, Caleb and Joshua, will enter the promised land. So for 40 years, they walk around. I've been on some long hikes, but I've never hiked. I'm not even 40 years old. I couldn't hike that long. But amazingly, in the midst of what is essentially punishment and judgment of the Israelite people, you notice the shoes never wore out. You notice they were able to keep on going. You notice they were always provided for regardless of how much they complained. When I was a kid, my mom would read to me every morning from this thing called the Picture Bible. I tried to read it to Isaiah now, and I'm like, wow, this is not very well done. But then I thought it was the greatest thing ever And every morning. And we would get to this section between Exodus and Deuteronomy, and I would just look at my mom and I'd say, man, these people complained a lot. They did, yet... Throughout, God continued to lead them. He continued to clothe and provide for them. And he never, never let go of his promise to them. So when the 40 days of wandering had ended, the Israelites made their way along the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. The journey was coming to a completion and it was there, up in the northern side of the Dead Sea, at Mount Nebo, that Moses would then die. And after defeating the kings east of Jordan, the Israelites subdued Canaan under the leadership of Joshua and under the miraculous guidance of the Lord. Because again, you don't typically destroy and defeat a nation with a trumpet and screaming. Regardless of what you think when your kids get loud, it will not bring the walls down. God can do that. When we move on to verse 3 and verse 4, in the 40th year, 40 years later, Moses has been leading these people around. He's got to be tired. In the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all the Lord had commanded him concerning them. I love this picture because at the end of the journey, as they're getting ready to go take the land God had promised them, Moses stops and Moses points them back to the word of God. Moses could have tried to give this really, really inspirational speech based on his own ideas, 
He could have tried to think like famous speech makers today or famous coaches today when they say, go get him, Tiger, and go do this and that. But instead, Moses reminds the people of who they are and what God has commanded concerning them. Because when you think about the Israelite people, when you think about these Hebrews, these very people, they are to be God's chosen people. They are to act like God's holy people. They are set apart. And Moses, having been with them for 40 years, feels a reminder is in order. And so he doesn't tell them out of his own words. He reminds them of the very words that God had given them. This was after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, and a couple of other guys. And Moses began to expound the law. I like that we translate there the word expound. Because expound to me is a fun word. As one that's known, supposed to be an expositor. In other words, one that, that preaches. Expound has great meaning. He didn't just explain the law, right? Moses didn't merely, as we'll look throughout the rest of Deuteronomy, he didn't just tell the law, but he helped the very people of Israel understand how to apply it to their life. He took the time in these, his last three sermons, and then as he wrote these poems, that all of which were inspired by the Lord God himself, he explained the value of the law in giving the life God wanted for his people out of love. God had given them this system out of love. And Moses teaches them that. And he says, the Lord God said to us at Horeb, you've stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp. Go. Go defeat the peoples. Keep going as far as the great river, the Euphrates. And then we get to verse 8. And I love verse 8. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. You see, long before the 40 years ago when God, or 40 plus years ago when God had made a promise and a covenant with Moses and with the people of Israel, he had promised Abraham, he had covenanted with Abraham that he would make Abraham into a great nation. And he continued that covenant with Isaac and with Jacob. And now Moses finds himself as the carrier of the covenant. Literally, they carried the Ark of the Covenant with them. They would do that as they walked. They would walk and their tabernacle would move from place to place. Why? Because they were never to forget that they were God's covenant people. Now, to be honest, today I'm not sure we understand covenant. You know, the closest thing we've got to it is we, we sign contracts. Uh, you know, you sign deeds for your homes. You sign leases uh, to rent a place, things like that. Those are to be covenants based on today's understanding. But they're certainly not held to the same level of what a Middle Eastern covenant symbolized. To break it, well, you just don't do it. It was of the utmost value for the culture. 
And so when Moses could proclaim that God has told us all these things, he can also proclaim the Lord swore he would give this to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to me, Moses would say. Why is that so important? Well, I think about it like this. It was a long time before I knew much about my uncle and aunt. Uh, Uncle Joe and Aunt Donna are their names. The only thing I knew was that my uncle and my dad had both served in the United States military during the Vietnam War. And it was during that war, many of you may have heard, that many Americans were captured and held prisoner. What I found out as I got older was that my uncle was one of them. And he was held captive in Vietnam for about five to six years. I can't remember exactly how long, and he doesn't talk much about it, so I'm not going to ask him. But in that time, right before he had left for Vietnam, two things had happened. One, my dad had enlisted in the military, and he was set shortly after he'd done his stint as a military policeman in Germany. He was set to go over and serve uh, in Vietnam as well. The other thing that had happened is my Uncle Joe had proposed to his future wife, Aunt Donna. And this was done right before he was sent off. Again, I'm not exactly sure of the timing. But right before he was shipped out to Vietnam as a helicopter pilot, he flew, if you like planes, or like helicopters, he flew UEs, the big, loud (laughs) plane or uh, helicopters. Well, unfortunately, shortly after arriving over there, he was shot down. And he was taken uh, to a camp. My dad was promptly told that he would not be allowed to go because they assumed my uncle was dead. And so if you're the last remaining male heir in the U.S. military of your family, you're not permitted uh, to serve during wartime. So he was kept in safe areas. The news came to my grandmother and the news came to my future aunt that as far as they knew, my uncle was dead. They had no way of knowing whether he was alive or not. So it's best to hold out some hope, but there's little likelihood he would survive. Well, for over five years, a woman that had made a promise to be the wife of a man she didn't know whether he was alive or dead, waited and prayed and just kept hoping in the Lord that God would somehow bring Uncle Joe, she knew him as Joe, I know him as Uncle Joe, back. My uncle tells me that somehow he got hold of a Bible and and he loved reading what little bit he could in the darkness of a cage that was one meter square. That's the size they put him in for months at a time. But my aunt waited. My aunt had made a promise, a solemn covenant, that she was going to marry Joseph Rose. And she waited for him. And on that day... When he got off the plane in Germany, when he'd been released, he was no longer a prisoner of war. His fiancée was waiting for him. When we understand covenants, there's a level of faith that goes with it saying, I will stand firm, trusting in my God that he will carry to completion that which he's laid before me. In the case of my aunt, she felt so strongly she should wait. She stuck by him, and they are still married today. And God has done some amazing things in their lives the older they get. In fact, recently, my uncle went back to Vietnam. 
And he said he could do it because of what God has done in his heart. He's learned about forgiveness. Corey Tenboom tells similar stories of learning what God's love is all about. It's about his covenant with his people. It's about holding fast to the promises of God and living by them. And so you see the thing we learn right off the bat in Deuteronomy is that God is faithful. He keeps his promises. Do we? God promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He also told Joseph that he had a plan. Time and again, we see God making a promise and he continues to keep his promises. Well, Mike, well, how did things keep getting so messed up then? Well, we go back to the story of the lottery. We have gotten ourselves in this attitude where we can do better than God. Then we'll expect him to fulfill his promises when they're good for us. But otherwise, our ways are better than God's ways. We've fallen back into what you would read later about in the book of Ecclesiastes, where we just have decided that outside of ourselves, everything in this world is meaningless. And therefore, it's all about me. And I want to invite us on this journey through the book of Deuteronomy to step back and say from the very beginning, God had a plan, and he stays faithful even when his people aren't. Well, how does that apply to you and I? Well, if you flip in your Bibles to Peter, to First and Second Peter, we're told that you, you who are the church, you who are disciples of Jesus Christ, you who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and are seeking to grow in maturity and knowledge and depth of insight, you are a royal priesthood, a people chosen by God. My God that made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses has made the promise to us that he will be our God and we are to be his people. And he will keep his promise to us. The question for us today is, are we faithful? Well, how do I know that God keeps his promises? Well, let's flip over to a couple of passages. It's Paul is finishing his letter to the church at Thessalonica that would be distributed all over. He says, may God himself, the God of peace, a theme of Thessalonians, sanctify you. If you're wondering what sanctify means, set you apart for him through and through. So Paul's prayer for his people is that God would set apart this church in Thessalonica. And and I believe Paul was praying this not just for that church, but for all the church all over the world. May your whole spirit, soul, and body. Notice the value of those words. This is not Paul talking about a commodity that can be sold or passed off. He's talking about the very people of God. May they be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know just a little bit before Paul tells us that we are to be a pure and spotless bride. That's the church. And here's the kicker. The one who calls you, the one who has adopted you as sons and daughters of his, the Most High God, the one who says, you are a royal priesthood, you are to be my bride. These are 
major promises. You are to be redeemed. The one who calls you is faithful. And he'll do it. Then you look back to Philippians. I thank my God every time I remember you. And all my prayers for all of you, I pray with thanksgiving because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Another of Paul's prayers, this one to start a letter, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As we celebrate our eighth birthday as a church, this is my prayer, that we are a people confident that God ain't done with us yet, but that we do not lose faith in Him. Rather, we follow Him obediently. We go where we know He's telling us to go, We look to our elders and under-shepherds and say, we'll learn together, we'll grow together, and as you lead and as you guide and as you teach, we'll hold you accountable, but we'll also go with you where you feel God is leading us. And we are confident that as the people of God, He who began a good work for us eight years ago will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And then we get down... And Paul prays that we may be able to discern what is best. How do we do that? We've got to spend time in the Word. If I could give you three more messages, if that's all I had left to give, and I think i got a lot more, so you're stuck. But if I only had three, I would just want to tell you the Word of God. I just want to say, go back to His Word. Look to Him. Don't try to figure it out on your own. Don't try to walk through this life apart from a faithful God that will guide us every step of the way. His word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And he is faithful. You believe that? Well, we're going to spend the next quite a while enjoying the promises, the truth, and the conviction of God's journey with his people as they prepared to enter the promised land. Let's pray together. Lord, you are faithful. We don't deserve it. We've proved that time and again. But you are our God. You are our King. And you never break a promise. I praise you for that. Lord, may we be a faithful people. Make us a people of your word. Help us to fall in love with your law as it becomes new and fresh to us, just as your mercies do every morning. And let us spur each other on today toward love and good deeds as we challenge each other with your word. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen.